Hi everyone, and welcome to Dead to Rights. I'm your host, Donna Carrick. We've got a real treat for listeners today. Critically acclaimed author D.J. McIntosh will join us to discuss her Mesopotamian trilogy, now available in ebook and audio, as well as print. Recognized by the Globe and Mail for its stellar research and superb writing, The Witch of Babylon introduced readers to John Madison, a rakish New York art dealer who uncovered a fabulous treasure trove of antiquities in the hills outside Baghdad and the truth behind a famous story long believed to be a myth. The Witch was chosen by Amazon as a best mystery thriller of the year and by CNN as one of six enduring historical thrillers. Chatelaine declared that the book of Stolen Tales, the second in the trilogy, took readers on a whirlwind of adventure, blurring the lines between myth and reality to reveal the shocking repercussions of dark legends of old. In the third book, The Angel of Eden, Madison's quest leads him from the great mosques and churches of Istanbul to the ruins of Pergamon and the temples of the ancient Near East, where he discovers the true location of the Garden of Eden, the nature of angels, and the dark story of his birth. And now, please join me in welcoming Dorothy McIntosh to Dead to Rights. Hi, Dorothy. How are you this morning? And welcome to Dead to Rights. Oh, thanks very much, Donna. I'm great. Good, good. I wanted to talk to you about the republishing of your Mesopotamian trilogy, the Witch of Babylon series, and I believe that you are now republishing with a new publisher. Is that correct? Yes, uh, it is correct, and it's quite an interesting situation, actually. Uh, Just to sort of uh, go back a bit, um, the Mesopotamian Trilogy is, is a series of historical thrillers that I wrote and that I published with um, what was then Penguin Canada. Now, of course, it's Penguin Random House. The first book, The Witch of Babylon, was published in 2011. The next one, The Book of Stolen Tales, in 2013. And the final one, uh, The Angel of Eden, came out in 2015. And the books uh, did very well, especially the first one was um, actually translated into uh, quite a few languages. So um, last summer, I was scrolling through my email, and I got a really big surprise, because I'd heard from a digital publisher uh, based in the UK called Canelo, and they wanted to republish the trilogy. And this came completely out of the blue. Uh, I had thought that the trilogy, you know, had done well, but it had had its life, so to speak. And now, here was an opportunity coming along to um, introduce it to a whole new audience. And what is the name of the digital publisher once again? It's Canelo. C-A-N-E-L-O. Canelo. They're uh, a digital publisher, uh, a very young 
entrepreneurial company that basically started up just a couple of years ago, and they're based in the UK, although they, they books that they publish, of course, uh, go around the world. In of the course, English digital language. publishing is uh, so easily international. It's um, really, you know, it generally can reach a pretty wide market. Um, can you tell yeah, us a little I bit? Should, I should just mention at this point that I was very fortunate in that I that I had all my rights back uh, for all English language destinations except for Canada. So. The new publications uh, are still in Canada, are still held with Penguin Random House. Okay, okay. And it is important, authors, if you're republishing anything, to know what your rights are at any given point because um, they will vary from country to country. But it is very easy, don't let that uh, daunt you, because it's very easy to publish internationally except for certain countries, to make that exception digitally. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the deal? Sure. Um, first of all, it's strictly ebooks. They don't currently engage in providing a, a print uh, a POD or any kind of a print opportunity. Uh, they may in the future, that may be something that they branch into, but right now we're focusing on ebooks. Mm -hmm. And um, the way the deal works is you don't get an advance, uh, but on the uh, sort of back end, you share 50% of. The sales, excluding um, only excluding the fees of the host, the server, for example, whatever. Yes, the platform, whatever charge. platform you're using, there's always um, a fee. Yeah. So that's really pretty generous. Yeah, it really is. It uh, really is. Because the publisher, in this case, as I said, Canelo, they pick up all the other costs. Yeah. Now, when when you're in essence reissuing. Uh, a manuscript that uh, another publisher started with, as was the case in my case, uh, you have to be very careful. You cannot just reprint that legally. It has to be basically completely redone from start to finish. Mm -hmm. So the new publisher uh, did a, a cover design and they, they did a, an editing format and uh, marketing, of course. Mm -hmm. So they, they kind of did the whole uh, the, the whole process that uh, you would find if you had engaged with a traditional publisher. Okay, very good, very good. And you, you refer to this as the third way of publishing. Why do you call it that? Well, yeah, I, I, I thought it came up with that because it's not a traditional publisher where, you know, you get the standard advance and you go through a fairly long process of editing and then all the other production elements that uh, go along with that. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it's not self-publishing either. Yeah. So it's kind of in between the two. It's kind of a and hybrid, I think, yeah. It's sort I of an independent... It's like a really, 
exciting uh, idea, really. Yes, yes, very much so. So it's really an independent style e-publishing um, outfit, which is really the wave of the future anyway, I think, in my opinion. I mean, that's certainly what Carrick does, so, you know, I think that is the way of the future. So um, what are the benefits to authors, in your opinion? Well, they're considerable, actually. If you compare it to traditional publishing, uh, it take, it doesn't take anywhere near as long. Mm-hmm. Uh, when um, Normally with traditional publishing, and I know this varies, you can't just say there's sort of one situation, because depending on the publisher, of course, uh, it may vary considerably. But generally speaking, uh, compared to a traditional publisher, it takes a lot less time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was first um, uh, first connected with Canelo last summer, and I think we signed the contract in October. And it, the book came out. The books came out February first. By the way, that is another big benefit in that. Um, all three of my books came out at the same time. Yes. So if somebody read the first book and really liked it, they didn't have to wait. They could immediately get the other two. They didn't have to wait that long period before the second book was. So they due. came out now, February. Is that that only yeah. applies to uh, a situation where you're reprinting, uh, because Canelo also accepts. Uh, new work from authors. They they don't just deal with um, situations where they're yeah. picking up back back issue rights. Yeah, yeah. And the three titles for anyone who's not familiar with uh, the work of D. J. McIntosh are The Witch of Babylon, The Book of Stolen Tales, and The Angel of Eden. And they are fabulous books, all three of them. My personal favorite has always been The Book of Stolen Tales, but I highly recommend all three. They're just fantastic. Um, Dorothy, you said that they all came out in February, is that right? Mm-hmm. So that means that they're available now in ebook format for any readers who wish to get them. And they are, they are antiquity thrillers. And yes. um, yes, so if you're interested in thrillers, crime thrillers, and particular antiquities um, or historicals, th- these are for you. They really are. Tell us a little bit about your protagonist. About the protagonist? Yes. Uh, the protagonist is uh, a guy named John Madison. He's a New York art dealer, and he's a little bit of a bad boy. He's uh, in, the, in the first book, the opening of the first book, he's in um, uh, feeling troubled, very troubled, because his older brother, who he's always looked up to, his much older brother, I should say, who was a famous archaeologist, uh, died in a car accident and John was at the wheel. So he's suffering from this situation. And he, uh, Madison gets caught up in trying to find a lost tablet uh, that was Mesopotamian in origin. The history and culture that my books deal with is Mesopotamian. However, the books are set in contemporary time. 
and Madison gets sort of drawn in almost against his will in picking up where his older brother left off, uh, trying to rescue a, a stolen tablet, and that leads to the discovery of an incredible cache, an incredible archaeological discovery in Iraq. Now, as you know, I speak with authors uh, pretty much every week, and most of the work that I discuss with authors I haven't actually read, but I can tell our listeners I've read all three of these, and they get an honest five stars each of these books from me. So by all means, go out and look for The Witch of Babylon, The uh, Book of Stolen Tales, and The Angel of Eden by D.J. McIntosh, that's Dorothy McIntosh, and uh, they are now available in, I would imagine, both Kindle and EPUB. Is that right? Uh, yes, they're available on all the platforms. All of the ebook platforms that you normally look for your books on. So um, find them there. Now, we talked about the benefits of this type, this third type of publishing deal, but we didn't talk about any drawbacks. Are there any drawbacks that you're aware of? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, there's no advance. Yes. Uh, and that, that makes a big difference. However, these days, publishers are not are getting, generally speaking, um, a fair amount less than used to be the case. Yes. So that's, that's, I guess, the primary issue vis-a-vis a traditional publisher. When it comes to self-publishing, um, the benefit of course, is that you get all the services, uh, editing, marketing, cover design, all of that, mm-hmm. at no cost to the author. I mean, that's yes. that's huge. Yes. Um, but on the other side, you do lose a little bit of control, right? Yeah. Uh, in the sense that um, if you're self-publishing, uh, everything is up to you, but also you get to direct everything. That's of right. course, you can definitely combine uh, whatever marketing campaign the uh, digital publisher is planning with all your own social marketing. Like, yeah. you, you're still encouraged and able to do that. Yes. But um, I guess basically that would be it. If you're self-publishing, you don't have the same level of control that you would. There are various grades of independent publishing, too. There are various, I shouldn't say grades, but various styles. Um, what you're discussing is, uh, it sounds like a very generous uh, deal, because if you think about ebooks, the pricing schedule that's used on most port platforms is a 70% royalty. 30% goes to the platform. So when you divide that by 50%, you're getting a 35% royalty, which is far greater than you get with most traditional publishing. And, um, oh, yeah. and you will, oh, at great. the same time, have a lot of freedom in terms of your promotion and things like that. With self-publishing, with straight-up self-publishing, you have that full control, but you lose the quality. You can lose the quality. I mean, unless you are truly an all-around renaissance artist, you can really lose quality in terms of your cover, in terms of your editing, in terms of story structure. You may get some help from an independent publisher with marketing. Um, some independent publishers, like myself, Carrick Publishing, will do a certain amount of that, but we don't retain any royalties. Instead, what we do is we take the, um, 
we take money for our work and uh, leave the royalties with the author, although that model will change in the future. It's going to go more towards a shared royalty methodology in the future. But for the next year or so, that will be the method still. Um, so there are, there's varying styles of independent publishing. I think it's worth looking into personally. Um, how do you go... Yeah, I sorry, I should just mention that uh, it's interesting because actually, at least in the case of my publisher, uh, they, a lot of agents are submitting to them, which I thought that was really interesting. That is. That is. I was going to ask about that, too. Um, do do agents submit, and how do you go about reaching out to these digital publishers? I actually was, that was part of the, the, the really nice surprise I got when they first approached me, because in my case, uh, they told me that uh, they actually regularly comb all kinds of web pages looking for work that fits the kind of book that they like to publish, and that they, and whose quality they really like. So that's how they found me. I, I didn't even, frankly, occur to me to look for a new publisher at that stage. But um, uh, you can certainly approach them through an agent, or presumably, you know, you get on the web and do a, a Google search, and, uh, you know, they're easily found it that way and you could presumably unless they stipulate that they won't accept uh, unsolicited material you could send them your manuscripts that way as well. I would think like any publisher check them out find out what their submission guidelines are if they have any that are published online and they most likely do and uh, follow their guidelines because Publishers really hate when you don't follow their guidelines. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Well, that's really fascinating, and I'm really glad that your trilogy has got this new life, Dorothy, it, because it's such a fabulous trilogy. I love to see it available electronically. I think that is the way people are reading, and, um, I mean, it's certainly the way I read. I'd forgotten how heavy and unwieldy books are. I wanted to buy a print book because we're on vacation this week. So I ordered the print book, and I thought, gee, it'd be nice to have a print book for a change. And I'm sitting up in bed, and I can't hold the thing up properly to read it, and my wrists are getting sore. And and then I'm like, this is why I buy Kindle and audiobooks <laughs> pretty much yeah. exclusively now, both Kindle and audiobooks or sometimes EPUB, you know? Yeah. yeah, I know. It's, uh, well, it's really interesting. I mean, the publishing world has had so many uh, daggers thrown at it, shall we say. Mm -hmm. And it's still, still suffering through the whole uh, impact of the digital world, and likely will for some time to come. But this is one, you know, one avenue, one way of uh, sorting that out and still uh, recognizing the value of authors and writers. Yes. Uh, you know, it's it's uh, it's just interesting to see uh, the different responses and how the industry is changing. Yes. Given the impact of Amazon or iBooks and, you know, how that's all going to play out. And the secret to survival in an industry like ours is really evolution. 
Um, some industries die just because simply there's no need for it anymore. But I do think there's always going to be a need for stories in one format or another. And um, as people in the storytelling industry, we've got to be able to evolve. And I, I'm mm -hmm. so glad to see that, that your John Madison has evolved. <laughs> yeah, well, he's, uh, he definitely uh, is keeping his toes in the the water, so to speak. <laughs> yes, yes. So again, now, Dorothy, what is your website for people who want to go search you out? It's djmacintosh.com. Simple as that, just djmacintosh.com. And you can certainly and search... Macintosh is, sorry, sorry, Macintosh is spelled M-C-I-N-T-O-S-H. Yes, thank you for clarifying that. And you can find Dorothy on Amazon or on Google exactly the same way. And look for her Mesopotamian um, trilogy because it's well worth reading. You're going to, you're going to really be pleased. Well, thank you very much, Donna. It's very kind of you to say that. It's not kind at all. It's a terrific set of books. <laughs> and Dorothy, thank you for joining us today on Dead to Rights. It's a real treat to have you back on the show. Ah, uh, it's my pleasure for sure. Let it rot. I want to thank Dorothy for joining us today on Dead to Rights. In early 2018, I was delighted to read her story, The Twin, on the podcast. In case you missed it, or if you'd just like to hear it again, stay with me for my reading of The Twin by Dorothy McIntosh. The Twin by D.J. McIntosh All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over thee, and set darkness upon thy land. Ezekiel 32, 8 The cathedral had survived other wars, he hoped it would prove a sturdy sanctuary for the one that lay ahead. Warm wind came in great bursts and gusts. The priest raised his hand to stop the fine ochre-red dust, ever-present in Baghdad, from blowing into his face. A heap of refuse against the cathedral's front wall, stirred by the wind, caught his attention. Dirty, plastic sheeting, the entrails of food packages and bags stuffed with the possessions of some lost soul were bunched up in a pile. The mound appeared to shift. Out of it emerged a gaunt tatter of a man. Father, he called out, could you wait? The man had a youthful voice but moved uncertainly like an old person afraid of falling. A sweatshirt with the hood pulled up shadowed his face. Baggy pants all but fell off his stick-thin frame. Probably sick, Father Tomas thought sadly, a common enough sight in many parts of the city. Still, the fellow seemed out of place here in the prosperous Kerada district. A student fallen on harsh times, perhaps. Something unusual about the man caused a minute jolt of alarm, although the priest could not place exactly what that was. He reached into his pocket for a few coins, hoping they would be enough to send the fellow on his way. May I ask why you're here? I feel better under the light. A pale finger pointed toward a fixture fastened to the wall. I've been waiting to see a priest for hours, father. And you are? People call me Nico, 
Well, Nico, let me go inside and see if I can find someone to help you. The man grabbed the cleric's cassock with such force he almost tore the sleeve. Please, I've already waited so long. I need to talk to a holy person. The priest recoiled, pushing himself away from the man's sulfurous breath and grasping hands. He hurried up the steps and opened the heavy doors. Brushing his fingers with holy water, he made the sign of the cross and hurried down the central aisle. No footsteps followed in his wake. The cathedral was empty. Any other time he would have welcomed solitude, but the strange man outside had upset him. The city was tense and unsettled, people deeply afraid. Who knew how this atmosphere might set off an already unbalanced individual? Father Tomas took a seat in the front pew, facing the wooden communion table and the simple altar draped with burgundy cloth. Below the crucifix, four tapers and tall candlesticks burned bright with flame. Together with candles in the wall sconces, they cast a warm golden glow over the church interior. He touched the Assyrian cross he wore, suspended from a chain of precise length, so it lay over his heart. He folded his hands in his lap, his feeling of serenity quickly restored by the calm tenor of the place. It reminded him of the gentle silence of being underwater. What a contrast this simple place of worship was to his beloved Santa Maria Sopra Minerva, Rome's only Gothic church, so named because it was believed, erroneously, to have been built over an ancient temple dedicated to the Greek goddess. His thoughts flew back to his many visits there, Bernini's statue of the elephant, carrying an ancient Egyptian obelisk in the Piazza della Minerva. Santa Maria's facade, so plain, one could easily pass it by without a second thought and miss the splendors waiting inside. Always upon entering the basilica, he would marvel at its beauty. The soaring nave patterned with tiny gilded stars, its vaulted ceiling of a blue so intense it seemed made of sapphire, the Maria Chapel, the magnificent high altar. Fra Angelica's ornate tomb was there, and Michelangelo's majestic statue of Christ the Redeemer, and Romano's Annunciation. He closed his eyes and murmured a prayer for the safety of his two sisters, Miriam, living with her family in Tikrit, and Layla, working at Al-Awaya, the children's hospital. A bony finger prodded his shoulder, breaking his reverie. He whipped around nervously to see Nico in the pew behind him. There had been no warning as the man came through the doors, no muffled sound of footsteps, no tell-tale scrape as he took his seat. "'I want to make a confession,' Nico said. I'm afraid confession isn't heard tonight. The priest scanned the seats, hoping for the reassurance of a few more warm bodies, but saw only yawning rows of empty pews. I can't offer you confession anyway. This is not my parish. Please, Father, it would mean a great deal to me. What is your trouble? I've hurt someone, the person closest to me. 
Well, you're to be commended for admitting that you've taken a wrong step. None of us goes through life without making mistakes. Whatever harm has been done, I'm sure will be forgiven, if you summon the courage to ask. You don't understand. It's much worse than that. Clearly the fellow was not to be put off. Perhaps the wiser path was to placate him. The cleric gestured towards a dark recess at the side of the cathedral, a small devotional area. We can kneel together over there and pray. An edge of fear resonated in Nico's voice. No, I want to stay here, and my prayers haven't worked. This is most unorthodox. Come and sit near me, then. It will have to suffice. Nico slid onto the front pew beside him, keeping his head bent so the priest could not easily see his face. How long has it been since your last confession? This is my first. You're a member of the church? Nico nodded. This one? Yes, Father. And you've received the sacrament of confirmation? Of course. Then I can't imagine how it could be your first confession. The man ignored this and repeated the ritual words, Bless me, Father, for I have sinned. The priest shifted further away on his seat and bowed his head. Go on. Do you remember George Eunice, the pianist? Certainly. The family is well known in the city. I killed him. Shock rippled through the priest's body. He strained to compose himself. Surely there must be some mistake. Perhaps this fellow was just desperate for attention. George Eunice's death had been a great tragedy, a musical prodigy. He'd made a name for himself in America, but had fallen ill and died on his last visit home to Baghdad. Nico smiled strangely to himself and said, George had too great a hold over me. I wanted to be appreciated for myself, not always outshone by him. I assumed the riches and acclaim he received would come to me, so I planned a horrible act. Nothing has turned out right. Now I just feel cursed. I was told he died suddenly from a sickness. Father Tomas tried to recall the name of the disease, but his memory failed him. An infection, something that caused a very high fever. Meningitis, is that what they said? Yes, that's it, meningitis. I can't believe his doctors would be wrong about that. They put George in a dark hospital room, shut all the window blinds, and kept him absolutely quiet. Only his parents were allowed in. It gave me the time I needed, you see. What was he suggesting? That he'd somehow gotten access to the hospital room and ended Eunice's life? The man seemed restless. His hands shook and he couldn't seem to keep them still. He'd rub his jaw and fiddle with the hem of his sweatshirt. His nerves were completely shot, Father Tomas thought. He probably hadn't eaten a decent meal for days. Nico spoke again. They made it impossible for me to get anywhere near George. At first I found that agonizing. It was the only time in our lives we'd been separated, and it almost killed me. Then I realized the incredible opportunity it offered. I saw my chance and slipped away for good. 
The disease didn't destroy George. He knew I was never coming back, and he couldn't survive without me. A mental case, certainly. Father Tomas relaxed a little. There had been no killing, after all. Very gifted people like George Eunice invited obsessions from all kinds of people. But how would the two of them even know each other? George was from a well-regarded family. His father a wealthy merchant, his mother a professor. They had a summer home on the Black Sea and a London apartment. It was difficult to imagine his path ever crossing with this poor ragtag fellow, let alone the two of them sharing any relationship. Nico mumbled something, then raised his voice. George and I were never apart, but the spotlight always picked him out. His brilliance, his good looks, his musical genius. No one ever stopped to think my quiet presence and support were vital to him. Who was this? A brother the family was ashamed of and kept hidden away? Possibly a twin? George had been on the short side and slim. In this respect, the man resembled him. No, it seemed unlikely. The priest knew the family well enough. A housekeeper's child, then? Someone who'd grown up alongside George and had persuaded himself they were on the same level? That made more sense. I felt compelled to copy him, Nico continued. George liked to practice music in the evenings at home. As a little ritual, he would light the candelabra and let me sit beside him. I could not read music, you see, even though my memory was prodigious. Much better than his, really. I could play just by mimicking the movement of his fingers, or so I thought. But when I was alone and put my own hands on the keys, it turned out to be a total failure. He even took me with him across the ocean to the jeweled school. What was he talking about? Jeweled school? When the cleric realized what Nico meant, he had to stifle a laugh. You mean Juilliard. Yes, I went to school there with him. This was plainly a fantasy. He'd blown what was, at best, a slight acquaintance far out of proportion. The bond existed only inside his head. Nico reached into the pocket of his bulky sweatshirt and felt for something. Could he be carrying a weapon of some kind? Father Tomas felt a sudden thrust of fear. It was disconcerting not to be able to see the man's features. He wanted to get away and search for the right words to end their conversation gracefully. Such a gift as George had is rarely duplicated. We each possess capabilities God granted us, however humble. Better you should focus on your own talents rather than aim to be something you're not. You don't understand. I tried to strike out on my own, but George always pulled me back. It was like an invisible thread stitched us together. My son, I do sympathize. The grief of George's passing has affected you, more than most, perhaps. I don't wonder at that, hearing how close the two of you were. But consider, the better part of your life is ahead. Don't give in to bitterness or regret. As to any mortal sin, you are blameless. I realize you're experiencing remorse, but that's a long way from actually having killed someone. The tremor in Nico's hands spread to his whole body. 
He shouted at the priest, You're still not listening to me. I need to be forgiven. Father Tomas shuddered. The fellow was really disturbed. Nothing could be achieved by further talk. He rose quickly and moved away. Again, the sense of something bizarre, almost alien, about Nico struck him. When his gaze drifted to the man's feet, the reality of who stood near him hit the priest like a shock wave. He experienced a frozen moment of indecision. Then his thoughts clarified. He knew what he had to do. He walked up to the altar and extinguished the first taper, then the second. As he reached for the third one, Nico said, What are you doing? If the power stations are destroyed, we'll have no lights. We're desperately short of candles as it is. The last flame sputtered out. He went over to a table holding votive candles in small blue glass receptacles, almost a third of them flickering with flames lit by parishioners. He put each one out with his fingers, wincing from the searing burn on his skin. Those are people's prayers. You can't do that, Nico cried. We have almost none left. They must be rationed, too. The wall sconce candles were last. Father Tomas moved to the end of the side aisle and snuffed the first one out. Nico ran toward him. Don't touch another one. I know what you're trying to do. These are not normal times. We have to take precautions. The entire central square of the nave was now in deep shadow, so Nico could not cross to the aisle on the other side. The light along this aisle was rapidly dimming. Soon it would be gone. He could sense himself weakening. He thrust his hand inside the pocket and felt for the fat, serrated steel blade of his knife. Nico stepped out of the cathedral doors, leaving the knife where it had clattered to the floor beside the priest's body. He drifted along a ribbon of illumination, spun by wide pools of light, rippling out from shop windows and apartment buildings. The bombardment of Baghdad that began early in the morning nourished and fortified him. He basked in great incandescent green phosphorus blooms, bursting into the sky, and the long flares cast from fires that burned for hours. Their powerful radiance far surpassed the weak light he usually had to make do with. Nico's body strengthened, and he felt filled with energy. Within a day, most power stations and transformers had blown up. The entire electrical grid collapsed. When the rain of bombs finally stopped, Baghdad returned to the state of a village in prehistory. A blanket of darkness fell over the great metropolis. With nothing left to sustain him, Nico faded to a translucent slip of gray and finally disappeared. A shadow may live without his master, but he cannot survive without the light. And that has been The Twin by D.J. McIntosh, a beautiful story that appeared in 13, an anthology of crime stories by the Maydams of Mayhem. Our thanks go out to Dorothy McIntosh for joining us today on the pod and for her wonderful short story, The Twin. 
Be sure to look for her Mesopotamian series in print or e-edition, wherever fine books and e-books are sold. Her titles again are The Witch of Babylon, The Book of Stolen Tales, and The Angel of Eden. Are you a published author? Would you like to join us on Dead to Rights? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at carrickpublishing at rogers.com and say Dead to Rights interview in the subject line. You can find us all over the internet on Facebook and Twitter. On Facebook, look for Donna Carrick, Alex Carrick, Carrick Publishing, or Dead to Rights. And Rights is spelled with a W, by the way. Our Twitter handles are at Donna underscore Carrick, at Alex underscore Carrick, at Carrick Pub, and at Dead to Rights Pod. Be sure to join us next week for our interview with Canadian crime writer Vanessa Westerman, the author of An Excuse for Murder. Our Dead to Rights theme song, Eyes of Gold, is composed and performed by Ted Carrick. You can learn more about his work at his YouTube channel, Ted Carrick Music. Thanks for joining us. See you next week. Dusty road, man alone. His vital signs go on hold. And I don't know what you've been told. But the years have turned my eyes gold. And I told you what you told me. We'd never be in the same boat for free, yet it rides, let it rock.